Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Guys, we're going to be in Psalm 145, verse 1. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness, and they shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. Your work shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk to your power, to make known to the sons of man his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds and all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expendedly to you, and they will give them their food in due, due season. You open their, your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth, who will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. The mouth shall serve, shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Um, and just a little, you know, instructional background context stuff for what we're going to look at here. Psalm 145 begins a section of the Psalms. Uh, where it's this collection of these psalms of praise. They're oriented around praising God for who he is. And this collection begins with this psalm, which is the last psalm ascribed to David. All right, so that's what we have this morning. Um, there's some, they're, they're called orphan psalms. There's some other ones that come after that we, you know, we don't know exactly who wrote them. It's likely that they were penned by David. But this psalm that we just read um, this morning is the last psalm ascribed to King David, who is called the sweet psalmist of Israel. And if you need a little bit more background, let me also share that, that the book of Psalms, it is an ancient songbook. We've called it the playlist of the people. All right, This is the hymnal of the Hebrews. This is the jams of the Jews. The Psalms are a collection of, of poems, songs, and prayers that Israel writes to their God in every kind of experience of life. Uh, we've made the statement each and every week, just like you could say about your iPhone, you know, there's an app for that. You could also say about life that there's a psalm for that. There's a psalm for every high, and there's a psalm for every kind of low, and there's a lot of different kinds of both of those. Uh, and so today, a little bit more of a happy note. We've got some depressing ones to come. Just a heads up. We'll be going low uh, in the weeks to come. But this morning, you know, it's summer. The sun is shining. Let's be happy, all right? Psalm 145, that's where we just read. 21 verses long, the psalm of praise, the last of David's. And uh, this morning, as we go back through this, these verses, I want to say this, too. Um, this is kind of a, a fun fact and uh, it doesn't really give us much uh, as English-speaking Americans, but this psalm is written as a Hebrew acrostic, which means that as David is writing this psalm, he's beginning uh, every verse uh, with a different Hebrew letter in alphabetical Hebrew alphabetical order. So that's just kind of cool. That means nothing for you and me. It means nothing, okay? Except the Bible's cool, all right? Write that down. That's a note, all right? Um, I want to say this. In light of that, I am going to absolutely butcher the alphabetical order of the Psalms today, okay? Uh, we're going to be jumping all around. Some of the themes don't flow. You know, it flows more alphabetically rather than thematically. And so you'll have the screen for that. You know, be, be, you know, uh, be encouraged to jump around with me. Uh, but we'll, we'll be going all throughout this today as we go back through it. Okay, that's enough disclaimers. All right, now to my second sermon. All right, if you're taking notes... 
Go ahead and write this down this morning for a, a title. This is where we're going. This is our roadmap for where we're headed. I want to preach this morning from the title, Keeping God in Mind. Keeping God in Mind. And with that, let's go before him and, and pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity this morning, this, um, this gift that we get each and every week to place you back on the forefronts of our minds. Lord, you are so worthy of all of our attention. You're so worthy of every thought, God. Um, and so we, we pray today, God, that as we are exploring who you are a little further, that you would not just become fresh in our minds, but that, Lord, you would lead us in a way that keeps you, keeps who you are, keeps what you're like fresh on our minds. Uh, Father, I've prepared a sermon. I've studied your word. I've sought after you. And now um, we invite you to do your thing, God, to have your way and do your work. I invite you, God, to speak to all of us this morning. This is your time. This is your place. Um, so we open our ears to you, and we invite you, Holy Spirit, to use me so that we can hear you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, this morning, I want you to get honest with yourself as we begin with this question. How strong is your memory? How, maybe turn to your husband or wife real quick, all right? How strong is your memory? You know, if I turn to my wife, I think we could ask each other that question, and, and those who really know me and, and my wife, whom, whom I know pretty well as well, um, we each have different strengths to our memory, and I could say weaknesses to our memory as well. Um, my wife is great at remembering every little fine detail of um, and the location of every single one of my belongings, okay? I don't know. Right now, I don't know where anything is. Just you know, at this present moment, I don't know where my kids are. I think they're in the kids' ministry, you know? Um, I, I don't know, like, my keys. I think they're in the back somewhere. Um, you know, it's, I think it's a sign of genius is losing things. I've read that somewhere. I think. I remember reading that. Um, sorry. Um, but, but for the most part, my wife is just so so sharp in that area. She's so helpful for that. You know, it's over here. You left it there. I hung them up there. All right. And so like all day long, if you've spent some time in our house, I feel like some family members can affirm this, that it's like Brittany's always locating what Andrew's lost. Um, and also she's really good at like the calculated list thing. Like she could work, she can go to the store. The thing she plans on getting, she gets. It's, it's amazing. It's a spiritual gift almost. Like she doesn't come home like, oh, I forgot the organic yeah, potatoes or whatever. Is that a thing? I don't know. But, um, now, me, on the other hand, I, I really, my memory suffers with a verbal list of, of, of um, you know, of something to get. Like, I just, like, if you send me with a list of 10 things, maybe you'll get one thing. Maybe I'll come back with it. I'm, I'm very keen on walking into a room and forgetting why I got into that room in the first place. Anybody else like that? You're like, I feel like I was, what was I? It's going to, like, save the world or something? I don't remember. Like, what am I doing in here? <laughs> like, something important or whatever, you know? Um, and, and I also like, I don't know if you're like this, but, but I, um, I think one of the worst forms of human suffering is not being able to remember that thing you really wanted to say like two seconds ago. You know that thing? Where you're like, oh, no, like it's gone, right? And you try, like I've tried all the tricks. I can't move on. Like if you want to go on to the next topic of conversation, just leave. I'm done. I'm done with the conversation until I recall that simple thing that I've forgotten. Um, it's interesting. I know we could all go around and we all could even point to our significant others, friends and family, and we could point out that we all have different strengths and or weaknesses to our memory. Um, generally speaking, there's some variety. I would submit, however, that when it comes to a relationship with God, when it comes to spirituality, there is one aspect that we all have in common with our memory. And it is this. It is the tendency in our memory to forget God. One thing we all have in common, and also it may come on in a lot of different ways, but it's the tendency for God to slip our minds, for who God is specifically, to also to, to what he's done to sort of slide out or at least slip to the back. Um, I think if we were all honest, we could admit that we struggle to keep who God is at the forefront. 
it's at least not a default, especially even when we wake up in the morning. Um, I, there's, there's days where I wake up thinking about the Lord. And I'm just waking up with this delight in him. And it's like, good morning, Lord. I'm excited for the day. But most of the time, there's a discipline involved there. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? Where I wake up thinking about every and any other thing except him. Mostly myself. Right? The age-old expression, I am always on my mind. Right? It's just true, especially first thing in the morning. To where the Lord is only going to be remembered with Intention, with, with discipline. You see, this is a tendency that God saw even in his people in the Old Testament. God is telling Israel, I'm going to lead you into some incredible things. I'm going to bless your socks off. I'm going to bless you, in, bless you in ways that you never imagined. As you persevere, as you trust me in the wilderness, watch what I do on the other side. But then he gives them a warning in Deuteronomy 6.12. But he says, but be careful that you don't forget the Lord. Be careful. There's a tendency here to forget the one who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. There are so many different things that can consume our minds. And and they're they're necessary things. Like you should be concerned. You should be consumed about your family and your well-being. You should have a goal-oriented mind. You should have certain things consuming your attention as a driven person, even as a person seeking to live and to for and to serve God. But we can all recognize the same tendency that the Israel has, that, that Israel has, that we all have this tendency to allow God to be clouded out, to allow my goals, to allow my responsibilities, to allow my job, to allow whatever it is, fill in the blank. What is the thing? Look at your own life this morning. I want you to ask yourself this question. What is the thing, what is the thought that often most dominantly consumes your mind? What are the thoughts? What's the category? What are those things that tend to have first place, that tend to cloud God out? It's important to be aware of those things um, because we can find ourselves in this humble place of saying, God, I tend to forget you. And when that happens, everything goes wrong. I mean, this is the story of Israel. The story of Israel is not forgetting what God would constantly tell them to remember. I could look at so many of the ways and and issues um, that I've had in my own life from from the ways that I've walked through different trials or have come up to different things. And nine times out of ten, my faith issue was a memory issue, right? My my issue with, with seeing God or believing God or trusting God or even recognizing God usually comes down to me forgetting him and forgetting who he's always been and forgetting what he's always Done. So what an important warning for us, and what an incredible gift that the Psalms are. See, here in Psalm 145, David is modeling for us all a practice, an important spiritual practice that we'll simply call the practice of remembering God. And notice what he says there in verse 1, and this is a, a psalm of praise. He says, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name, notice this, forever and ever. And then verse 2 said, every day, this is a daily practice, he says, I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Now, this is really beautiful. David has both the eternal and the daily in mind. So important. He's like, God, I'm going to be praising who you are. I'm going to be mindful of who you are for all of eternity. But I also need to make sure that I don't just relegate my praise for an eternal moment in the future. i got to make sure I pull eternity right here to the present and incorporate into my life a practice where I am every day praising you. I am every day remembering who you are. That's what Psalm 145 is. David here in Psalm 145 is is modeling for us a practice where he is sitting down and he is reflecting upon who God is. So important. On a daily basis, sitting down alone with the Lord. And And I really mean this as like a practice that you're focused on. I think a lot of us, we might say, oh, I do this because... Because maybe in our mind what we're thinking about is kind of how we go about our day thinking about the Lord. And that's good. I'm not saying not that. I'm not saying, you know, we should always carry in our minds the goodness of the Lord. But David here is modeling a daily discipline. That's not something that's being done secondarily so much so, but it's taking the time to do this primarily. Going, this is who you are, God. This is who you are. I'm praising you for who you are. And he's writing it down. I think that's really beautiful. Right? That's, you know, 
I'm really thankful. People are, you know, I hear this a lot where it's like, you know, there's nowhere in the Bible that's like says that we have to journal. Why are people so strict about that? Like, I don't like to do my devotions like that. I'm more of just like a reader and a reflector. You know, I'm not much of a journaler, you know, and I'm not going to get legalistic on that and be like, you know, what's the statistic? Like 80%, 85% of people who, who, um, who journal end up in heaven, you know, or something like that. Um, there's nothing like, you know. Um, you could say that the Bible does, doesn't command journaling, but you could think about it this way. The Bible exists because of journaling. <laughs> oh, I guess it's important, right? Like, because of documenting, putting from, from my head to my hand onto the paper, who God is, that practice of being in that moment, we have things like Psalm 145. We have books like Jeremiah that God's like, write this down, okay? So, so David's modeling that sort of practice. Now, how is he doing it? Now, when you look at this Psalm, David is... Uh, employing the practice of remembering God in two ways. Number one, he's using scripture. David is allowing scripture to remind him who God is. David is not just reducing what he knows about God to what he feels or what seems to be true. He's allowing the, the measure and the truth of God's word to inform what is true on a daily basis, a practice there. How do we know this? Well, Psalm 145 is basically an exposition of Exodus 34, 6, and 7. This is a passage in Scripture where God reveals himself to Moses. God reveals his character to Moses. Moses is like, God, I want to know you like, as up close and personal. I want, to know, I want to see you. This is what Moses asked God. And God's like, you don't know what you're asking for, Moses. If you see me, you'll die. I'll give you a little glimpse of me, and I'll reveal my name to you. And in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God declares his name to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. God begins to unpack all that he is to Moses. Now, that passage, uh, John Mark Homer wrote a whole book on it. I highly recommend it. We did a book club on it three years ago. And it's called God Has a Name. And it's all about who God is revealed to Moses and, and revealed in God's word. And John Mark Comer makes this really interesting comment, something I never realized about Exodus 34, this passage. Uh, he says that Exodus 34, 6 and 7, this verse where uh, God is, pro this moment where God is proclaiming his name to Moses, who he is, it is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. It is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. M you could say like mostly the Bible... Is an, is an unpacking and an explaining and an exploring of who God is as revealed to his people. Just beautiful. Now, that's what Psalm 145 is. Psalm 145 is like a poetic song meditation of who God is. It's so beautiful. So, so that's first. When we come before God in that practice, there's got to be this daily rhythm, knowing our tendency to forget the Lord and everything else that goes wrong with that. There's got to be this employment of Scripture in my reminding but there's also got to be this personalization. That's the second thing David did. There's got to be this personalization of what's true about God. Notice in verse 1, David says, I extol you, notice this, my God, O king. You're my God. You're not just God. These aren't just concepts I know about you theologically, but I am on a daily basis getting alone with you and reminding myself that who you are theologically is actually who you are to me personally. That's amazing. That, that's profound. That's powerful. That's life-changing to do that. We're so good. I know especially me. We're so good at memorizing and explaining concepts about God. I can minister to your soul all day long about concepts of God. You know, I found it that I found this, especially in ministry, that it's actually easier for me to convince other people about who God is sometimes than it is to convince myself. To personalize it and go, God, this is true. I remember as I look back on my life, I go, yeah, there's a moment where you were faithful to me. How could I forget that, Lord? God, there's a moment when I prayed for this and you provided. God, here's another moment where I prayed for this and you didn't answer it because you're smarter than me. Right? What an important practice, the practice of remembering God, or as the sermon title suggested, the practice of keeping God in mind, keeping God fresh on your mind with both his word before you and your life being reminded before you as well of who God is and how he's been faithful in your life.
Now, there are a variety of implications of this. Having God fresh on your mind, according to Isaiah 26.3, for example, I love this. It's, it's a pathway to peace. Isaiah 26.3 says that you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Now, maybe this is less of a memory issue and more of a distraction issue. Anybody else? The whole, like, stayed on you thing. It's like I can remember things, but then that thing comes in the way. And all of a sudden, I get distracted. But what a promise. What an implication of, of, of keeping God fresh in our minds. One of the results, peace. How much turmoil in your life today is just connected to what you've forgotten about God? How much peace could flood your soul on a daily basis if you reminded yourself, if you reminded yourself of who God is right now? Not just theologically, but to you personally. It's a pathway to peace. Now, we also see in Psalm 145 that it's a pathway to praise. That's what this whole psalm is. Psalm 145, it's a psalm of praise, right? And we read that. I'm going back to the same verses over and over again. But David's praising the Lord. He says, I will extol you. Um, he says, I will bless your name. So there's like this decisiveness that David has. I'm going to do this, God. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to extol you. I'm going to bless you. Every day I'm going to do it. I'm going to praise you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Uh, but the reason why David is so decisive in this is because he's convinced about who God is. Uh, this is, by the way, the, the only true pathway to genuine praise. Okay? A praise is not you know, when you're really passionate about a song that you like in worship. Like, oh, this is my song. Okay, here we go. Praise is rising up all of a sudden. All right? That's not praise, right? Praise is not when the, when, the, when the notes are hitting just right. It can be a tool for that, but praise is simply a response to what we know about God. Just a response to what we know about God. It's been said that, you know, at the end of the day, truly, you know, theology, what we know about God, is the ultimate worship leader. It's the best worship leader. What I know about God, it provokes me to respond in praise. And that's what David's doing uh, in this psalm. He's reflecting upon who God is. And out of that is, is birthed this really genuine and beautiful praise. In the weeks to come, we're going to look more in detail at praising the Lord. PTLing, as it's called in the church. You know, PTL, man. Praise the Lord. Um, we'll, we'll be looking at that more in the days to come. But as we go back through this psalm, let's look at this now. As we go back through Psalm 145, uh, David has modeled for us, remembering the Lord, and he's focused on specifically uh, a few key things. The first thing as David is remembering the Lord, uh, let's look at the different things that David is, is remembering about God. And this, we, you know, I would say that Psalm 145 is a great tool, by the way. Like if, if you're like, I'm struggling to remember who God is, just open up to Psalm 145 on a daily basis. And as you go through this, what you're going to get is reminders about who he is not just conceptually, but to you personally. Uh, the first thing that David reflects upon in this psalm of praise is the greatness of God. I'm going to write that down. David reflects on the greatness of God. The practice first of remembering the greatness. The greatness of God. We see that there in verse 3. David says this. He says, great is the Lord. And I love this, and greatly to be praised. That's kind of cool. He's like, the praise should match the one being praised. He's great, therefore he deserves great praise. And then he says, his greatness, a lot of great going on. It's really great. He says, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Uh, down in verse 6, he says something similar. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness, the greatness of God. God, you are great. Now, what's the trouble with this word? Well, first, let's acknowledge uh, we have all sorts of different meanings for this word in our culture. Like to understand the greatness of God. David here is declaring that God is great. We've got to first confront what we might wrongly think that means. You know, in our culture, when we use the word great, we can often use it to describe, you know, someone or something that is like decent, you know, or like satisfactory. We're like, man, they're great. Have you met them? They're great, greatly to be praised as they are, right? Like, we can kind of use it as this word to say kind of decent or satisfactory. Or, you know, on another hand, we could use it, it's almost like in our culture, the word great is like good 2.0, right? It's like good on steroids, right? It's like, it wasn't just good. Those frosted flakes were great, all right? I didn't do the R, okay? But, you know, that's the kind of concept. Now, let me say this, okay? God, 
God is Tony the Tiger great, okay? He is great in that way. He's awesome. But this word great, it's important that we understand what David is reminding himself. When David is saying, God, you are great, he's speaking of the aboveness and elevatedness of God's being and nature. You know, Jesus was asked by his disciples a lot about how they could become great. I want to be great. That was their sort of selfish ambition. And in their mind, what they were saying is, God, how do I get to the top, right? How do I get to the top of the cultural ladder? Um, you know, in our, in our culture, we have different, uh, we call them uh, goats, right? Goats. Greatest of all times. They're the goat, man. They're great. They're at the top. They're the cream of the crop. They're at the top of the ladder. Um, and, and what this is saying about God is that God's greatness is in a category of its own. God's elevatedness, God's aboveness rises far above any other person. He's great. Now, that might be kind of general. So uh, to get more specific, when we think about the greatness of God, what we're thinking about specifically is God's, write this down, God's capacity and capability. David is remembering the greatness of God's capacity and his capability. This is what God's greatness speaks to. Not just that he's pretty awesomely good, but that he has a capacity and a capability beyond any other. Now, first, capacity. You know, contrasted with us, we have um, a limited capacity. Have you ever faced that? You're like, empty, need to be refueled to continue the conversation, okay? We have a limited capacity with every and any kind of thing. We, we, we're only so great at parenting. We're only such great friends. We're only such great listeners. We're only such great forgivers. We have a limit. Uh, we reach our capacity to be great at all those different things. We have a limited capacity of love. We have a limited capacity of forgiveness. We just do. Um, you know, it can get us by for a time, but there comes a point where we face our weakness. Where we go, I, I don't have in and of myself what it takes. Now, contrasting ourselves with God, we could say his greatness, his capacity, the psalmist says, is unsearchable. No one compares to the capacity of God. How great is the capacity of God? It's unlimited. There, there's no end to God's capacity and the, the scriptures are constantly wanting to remind us of, of this about God's greatness. That, that God isn't just loving, but he loves us with a great love. Even in this psalm, as you go through it, there's different verses in this very psalm that say that God isn't just good, but he's great in goodness. He's not just powerful, but he has great power. One of my favorites is Ephesians 5, 2, or 2, 4, rather. Uh, it's talking about how dead we were in our sin. We were like greatly dead in our sin. But it says that God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, verse 5 says, even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. Now, how and why did he do that? Because of the capacity of his love. I want you to think for a second about God and sort of ask yourself this question, how do you understand and view God's capacity? Could it be possible that you've begun to limit his capacity over your life? Like, you go, you know what, God, you're, it's been so great for so long that I understand now if you're done with me. You ever been there? You've been really great. Right? This has been a nice run, all right? Um, still a sinner. Looks like that is a thing. So um, I know you're, you've been really great. Now, if you want to continue to be great, I'll allow you to, but I get that there comes a point. Now, that's how we can think, right? Why? Because we project upon God how we are. We, we have, now, try to fill your mind with this idea that God doesn't have a limited capacity. He's got great grace. He's got great love. He's got great power. So this speaks to his capacity. He, he doesn't get tired like we do. He doesn't get weary like we do. It's good news. Um, it's good news because when you run low, you know who to go to. Um, you know that, that when your battery's dying, you can plug into the Lord. And you can get a fresh filling of what he has. Uh, it's important to recognize that this, this capacity of God that we're talking about, it also plays into his capability. This is so big. Uh, the capacity of God, he's great in love, he's great in mercy, 
It's elevated above every and anyone else. And it is tied also into what he is able to do. Ask yourself this question. In your mind, is God great in your current circumstance? What's an impossibility that you're facing? What's a, a giant that you're facing? What's a storm that you're facing? And do you believe deep down that God is greater? That he's larger? That he's stronger? That he's more capable than what's before you and what's coming against you? There's a great example of this modeled in the life of Jesus who is God on display as a, as a human. In Luke 9, it tells us that it happened on the next day after Jesus was transfigured before the disciples, his glory was revealed, that they came down from the mountain and a great multitude met him, Jesus. Verse 38 says, suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, teacher, I beg you, I implore you, look on my, look on my son for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So you have this spiritual possession occurring, uh, spiritual oppression occurring. Um, and it's in, in the life of a young boy who's the only child to this father whose heart is just grieving. There's, there's a real demonic force at work. Now, he comes to Jesus and he says this, I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. They had a limited capability and capacity. They likely were trying to do it in their own strength. And Jesus goes on to say that there's some things that only come out through prayer and fasting. There's some things that require, most things we should say, us to step away from our own power and plug into God's power and say, God, I need you in this. Uh, there's a lot that I think that that can unravel, so we won't go too, too much further into that. But here's what happens. He comes, he says, Jesus, I came to your disciples, but they just couldn't do it. Limited capacity, limited capability. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. This is just such beautiful language. Healed the child, or can you envision this? And gave him back to his father. You just imagine that it's like, that's so much more than like a physical thing. That's like the Lord is giving this father's son back to him, healthy and whole and healed. It's really beautiful. Now, notice what the next verse says. I love this verse. In the NIV, it says, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. They all said, wow, God is great. There was this high view of God that welled up in their hearts to understand God to be much bigger than we often acknowledge him to be. So in your life, is there this recognition and reminder of the greatness of God. Where in your life do you need to apply God's greatness? Where could it be possible do you have some things that are looming too large? And you've got to just stand them up, you know, next to God. Stand them up next to God. It's like, you know, my kids, they think I'm pretty tall, you know. And I affirm that. I'm like, yeah, you got it right, you know. I'm the tallest person in this house, you know. But if you were to stand me up next to Jordan Ross in the back of the room, okay, any of us, I would not look as tall, a little smaller, a little shorter, okay? Uh, and it's true. A lot of the things we're looking at, they look so big because we're not putting them next to God. We're not comparing them next to the greatness of God. So where in your life do you need to apply the thought and the prayer of God's Greatness. David says, remember God's greatness. Now, it's more than that. He also leads us to remember not just the greatness of God, but also... The glory of God. This is a beautiful reflection that David then leads us to remember. We think about how great God is, and then reflecting on how great God is, David reminds himself of how also glorious, how glorious God is. The glory of God. Notice what he says there in verse 5 as I butcher this acrostic Hebrew psalm. In verse 5, I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty. That's what David's thinking about. All right, he's going, I'm thinking about how glorious you are as king. Isn't that awesome? I'm going to think about how glorious you are and on your wondrous work. So again, sorry, jumping around here, but look at verse 10. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. 
to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glorious majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So, so David goes from thinking about the greatness of God to then going, God, in your greatness, you are glorious. You're just glorious. Now, the glory of God, this is one of those words that's often overused and mostly underdefined. And part of that is because there's a lot of different understandings of what we mean when we say the glory of God. That Moses said to God, God, show me your glory. Here David's going, God, you're, you're so glorious. We're going to celebrate the glory of your kingdom. But if there's one concept that most every Christian and theologian and scholar agrees upon uh, in regards to what David is talking about here when he's talking about the glory of God, it's this idea that when the Bible talks about God's glory, it's really speaking of, you could say in simple terms, it's speaking of his beauty. Just simple, his beauty. This is someone who's really encountered God. You know, the famous Tim Keller quote, religious people find God useful. Christians find God beautiful. They've beheld who he is, and they're like, that's glorious. God is beautiful. There's times in Scripture where people come face to face, and they encounter the glory of God, which uh, John Piper loves to talk about this. And one of the things he says about the glory of God is he uses these big terms. He says this. He says, the glory of God is the beauty of God emanating from God's character. So think of like God is the sun, his glory is the rays. And it brings warmth, it brings heat, it affects us. Who God is must change us. Now, one of my favorite examples of this in all the Bible is a guy named Isaiah. Isaiah's whole life was transformed when he encountered the glory of God. In a nutshell, God went from a concept to a reality. God went from like, oh, there is a God that he is, that's, he's like that. Okay. Now, now here's what happens. Isaiah 6, this is an interesting picture here of encountering God's glory. It says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. So this is similar to David's language describing the, the royalty of God, the glory of his reign and his rule and his kingdom. And he was high and lifted up. So AKA, pretty great. All right, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Keyword here is Isaiah's like, I saw the Lord. I had a vision of God. Above it stood seraphim, or angels. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, notice this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Notice the connection. The whole earth is full of his glory. The substance, holy. The rays coming from the sun, the beauty, it's glory. Now, this is the only thing in the Bible, only time that God is described three times, it's the word holy. The Bible doesn't say that God is love, love, love. It doesn't say that he's awesome, 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 or great, great, great. It says that he is holy, holy, holy. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he came face to face with the word holiness. Uh, he came face to face with God's otherness. The word holy means to be set apart or to be separated from what's common. A.K.A. God is in a category of his own. And there is no spot. There is no blemish on him. There is no sin in him. He is holy and he is so glorious in his holiness. Notice what happened as Isaiah saw the Lord. This was his response. Uh, here's what happened. Here's his, his response. The, the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone. This is what happens when we see God, by the way. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, it's really important to point out that prior to chapter 6, Isaiah's ministry essentially was going around and saying, woe to you. Woe to you. You are unholy. You are unclean. I'm a prophet of the Lord. And Isaiah, when he saw himself, he was like, compared to you guys, I'm all right. Okay, that's kind of what he thought. That's how we can think as well. Uh, you know, your whole life, if, if you live your life measuring your own morality and your own, your own holiness in comparison to people around you, you will live a self-deceived life thinking you're as good as you think you are. And it's not until you move people away from that comparison point and you, like Isaiah, see God that you'll actually see who you're not and you'll see who you are. 
when you stop kind of doing the measuring thing, listen, we're not, when we go to heaven, we're not measured in our holiness based on the person next to us. We're measured according to the standard of God. That's why the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the, not the glory of their neighbor, but the glory of God. And notice that when Isaiah sees the Lord, he sees himself all of a sudden. And he goes from woe to you, woe to you. He's like, woe to me too. Whoa, okay, whoa, all right? Like, woe to me and you, all of us, we're screwed, right? That's basically what he says. He's like, this is bad. Like, when we see how holy God is, we see how much we fall short of that. We see how beautiful he is. And in reality, there's a sense in which our sin reveals kind of how ugly we can be. I know that's not like, you know, the most encouraging thing into our spirit sometimes. It's like, we want to come to church and be told we're fearfully and wonderfully made, okay? And you are. God loves you. You're beautiful, okay? In his eyes. But there can be this blind eye that can be turned when all we're doing is positively affirming the Imago Dei without acknowledging how sin has messed with who God created us to be. Sin is a real offense to God. Sin is a real thing. Sin is a real problem. And not just their sin, your sin, my sin. Apart from Jesus, we're stuck here. Woe is me. Now, it's been well said that this is, you know, this is the best place to be, by the way. This is what a Christian is. A Christian isn't someone who's met the standard. I learned the rules. I didn't know the rules before. I became a Christian. I learned the rules, and now I'm holy because I learned the rules. It's like, no, it's actually the opposite. Like, the more you learn the rules, the more you realize you fall short of them, right? Um, a Christian is someone who's come to the point to where they recognize, I am a sinner like Isaiah and the people of Israel, and I need a Savior. I am unholy. I, I, am, I am unworthy in and of myself, created in God's image, but fallen. And this is a good place to be. Jonathan Edwards said, this is the only thing you need for salvation. He said, the only thing we need to be saved is need. Is acknowledging, God, I need you. I know who I am apart from you. And this is, of course, the pathway into our salvation as we see Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb, the holy one of Israel, who becomes sin for us. And then through our faith, he gives us this free gift. It's a great deal. Through our faith, he gifts us his holiness. But this is also a great model for a life in Christ that is filled with this constant acknowledgement. God, I realize who you are. It shows me who I am. God, help me stay in the mirror of who you are so that I can be changed. Uh, there's a, a whole verse about this. I love this scripture. This was a verse that I meditated on often when I uh, first started walking with the Lord. I need to come back to it constantly. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. This speaks to the access that we have with God, similar to that of Moses, who knew God face to face. And we get to remove the veil. We get to behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And scripture is often ascribed as that mirror. We are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So what a beautiful practice. The practice of coming before God and beholding the beauty of all that he is. And what that practice helps us do is it helps us take an honest look at ourselves. I can't tell you how many times I opened up the mirror of God's word and I was confronted on something that I've been justifying. Usually it has to do with like loving someone, you know, like I'm allowed to not love them anymore. Okay, God, like I know that. And then you read a verse and you're like, oh, the Bible, the Bible, okay. You behold the mirror of God's love and you see yourself and it's in that process of constant repentance, constant humility that we're actually transformed into that same image that we're beholding. It's just cool to think this, that God makes us beautiful. He, he makes his children shine like the stars of the heavens. This is what he does. He wants to do that in your life. He wants to bring you beyond just woe is me. He wants to make you look like him. Such a cool thing that happens when we reflect on the glory and the beauty of God, the weight of God. Uh, David lastly, or rather almost lastly, we'll get there in a second. Uh, David then goes to the goodness of God, the goodness of God. So there's the greatness of God. David has to come before the Lord and he reflects on, he remembers that God is great. He's higher than and above everything I'm facing. And as I behold his greatness, I get a glimpse of his beauty and his glory. 
his very nature that emanates from his person. I see the beauty of who he is. I see how holy he is. He's so different than me and you and everyone, and yet he calls us to be holy, and he makes us holy. So beautiful. And then David gets to the goodness of God. This is that one that just needs to sit really tight in your heart. The goodness of God. He says it's so plain there in verse 7. They shall utter the memory. He's talking about greatness and he says, of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. So the goodness of God. David says, I'm thinking about your goodness, Lord. Now, if the greatness of God speaks to God's capacity and capability, we would say that the goodness of God, it speaks to his character and consistency. David's coming before the Lord and he's saying, God, you are good. It's who you are. It's your character. In fact, when God revealed himself to Moses, this is the way that God actually summarized who he was. God told Moses, when I come before you, he said, I'm going to let all my goodness pass before you. This is who God is. Now, this is another one of those words that we got to be careful with because we can use it in so many different ways to be like, that movie was pretty good. That was good. Ice cream is good. That restaurant, good. How was service today? It was good. How is God? Good. It's like, that shouldn't be in the same category. So what are we talking about here? When we talk about the goodness of God, we're speaking about his very character and his essence. We're talking about how he's that way consistently. The idea here is that for God to be good, you know, for, for him to truly be good, which Jesus said, there is no one good except my Father in heaven. For God to truly be good, he has to always be good. This is just true. If you're sometimes, you know, perfect, you're not perfect, right? You're not, you're not per- Now, only God is this way. Only God is perfectly pure in his heart and his goodness. And, and, and I don't know if, I don't want to pit some of these against the other, but I know, for, at least for me, this is the one that I've got to constantly come back to. Because um, there's a lot of things in life that can feel like uh, they're contradicting this reality. There's a lot of things that we can walk through and we can become bitter. We can become frustrated. We can become confused. God, I thought you were good. I thought you were good. Now be careful. You were right to think he was good. He is good. Now, part of recognizing the goodness of God is we have to recognize the brokenness of this world. We've got to recognize the broken effect of sin. We've got to recognize that God created this world and he called it good prior to sin entering the system and fracturing everything. The good news of the gospel is this. It's not that God is good because bad things don't happen. It's not that God is good because you don't go through bad things. The good news of the gospel is that despite all the bad things, God's goodness reigns above it all and remains. It remains. It remains for eternity. In the end, can we remind ourselves, sin doesn't win. The goodness of God wins. And this is because of his good news, right? The good news of the gospel, the good work that he has accomplished. This is our anchor in life storms. And when things are bad and I want an explanation, what I really need is a fresh revelation that God is good. You're good. It's true. I can say it. Even though I've been saying it since I was in VBS, you are good all the time, and all the time you are good. It's true. It's true. God, you're good. Now, when we talk about this idea, too, of goodness, I think one of the best ways to think about it is James chapter 1, verse 17. It says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from, I love this, the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So this is like a master class here on the goodness of God. Because God is good, we could trace every good thing back to him as the source of it. If there's something good, it just points to God. He's good. That's where it came from. Additionally, this good God from which all things come, he's called here the father of lights. I love that. He's the father of brightness with whom there is no shadow. Okay. So we've explained this before to say like when you look at God, um, I think a great cross-reference to this, I have it up here, is 1 John 1, 5. This is the message that we've heard, we declare to you, that God is light, this is what this is saying, and there's no darkness at all. He's just good. He's just light. 
There's not like, God is not like good on the front. Sometimes we could think this, but we're so used to people per, being perceived as good, but having a hidden agenda or having a hidden motive. Like there's no dark side that God is hiding. Isn't that great to know? There's not a single spot of dark in him. You know, we think about the Star Wars example. He's Anakin without the dark side, okay? No Vader involved here, all right? This speaks to the purity of God's goodness, that there's not a spot or blemish of imperfection or sinful motive in him at all. He is only always trustworthy because he's good. Now, the psalmist kind of unpacks uh, one of the most important things about this, and it's this idea that God is, it's not just that he is good, but even uh, James was talking about it. Because he is good, he also does good. He does good. It's verse uh, 9 there. Uh, 145 verse 9. The Lord is, and notice the, the expression here, he's good to all. He's good to all. Um, and this is talking about something called common grace. Um, that the goodness of God is displayed in the fact, first and foremost, that he has created a world in his goodness for humanity to enjoy, to live in. Um, both the believer and the non-believer alike. God makes the rain and the sun, uh, the sunshine on the just and on the unjust. He's just, he's so good that he's even good to his enemies, right? Those who have turned their hearts against him. He's good to all. He's good to all. Uh, the psalmist unpacks this. He says, the Lord, and the key word here is all, right? The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all. Now, whether they're intentionally doing this or not, David is making a theological observation about humanity's provision. Remember last week we watched that 30-minute-long video? Remember that? Just kidding. It was like six minutes. It felt really long. But it was on the fine-tuning of the universe. We thought about how God is He's the fine-tuner that, is, that has set everything the way it is. And this is describing that reality, that the eyes of all, they look expectantly to God, and He's the one who gives them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy, I love this, the desire of every living thing. And then he goes on to say, the Lord is near to all who call upon him and all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who love him. He will also hear their cry and save him. So, so, so David is, is expounding the fact that God is not just good in his essence, but he's good in practicality. He has been good to every single person on this earth. He's good in what he does. Now, it's important to point out the fact that, I love this idea, that God is good to all. The Lord is good to all. He's good to everyone. Generally, uh, there's, there's, there's common grace. Um, First Timothy kind of unpacks this a little bit. I love this verse. It says, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, I love this, who is the Savior of all men, but especially those who believe. Isn't that cool? <laughs> So, so God, right now, if you're, if you're not a Christian and you're breathing, God is your Savior. He's the Savior of all men. Um, it's his mercy that allows us to live on this earth even apart from him. That's his mercy and his grace. And whether or not you acknowledge him as Savior, he is your Savior. He saved you in the past. He's saving you presently. He desires all men to be saved eternally. He's the Savior of all men. He does good to all. But I love this. He's like, but especially special goodness, special salvation to those who believe. It's kind of even reflected in, in Galatians. Paul says to the church, he says, you know, as we have opportunity, do good to all, like God does. That's the psalm. Do good to all. Especially, I love that. It's like special treatment, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And the reason why, why, why Paul is describing this and why David is describing this is because, God, listen, God's heart is, is good towards all of humanity, but God's heart is especially good to his children. He's especially good to his children. He's especially good to his kids. And last week on Father's Day, we got to reflect on this, that he's a good father. He's a God who desires good for his kids. Now, listen, in my life, I definitely desire to do good to all. You know, uh, the danger becomes when we start segregating who we're good to and who we're not. And then we stop looking like our Father in heaven. Jesus taught to love your enemies, to do good to all. Why? Because then you look like God. That's what he's like. But I'd be lying if I didn't say that I'm especially good, hopefully, to my kids. 
I'm especially good to those who are directly into my life. And I want you to think about yourself then as God's own child to whom he is especially good to. He's the savior of all men, but especially you who believe. He's good to all, but especially those who are in the household of faith. He is especially good as a father to his children. Jesus taught, if you then being evil fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to his own kids who ask him? Now you go, I know this, but are you remembering this? Is this on the front of your mind? And lastly, I mean at this time, this is the last one. We'll close with the grace of God. Invite the band to come up. This is the last thing, certainly not the least thing, but the last thing that David leads us to remember on a daily basis, the practice of remembering the greatness of God. God, you are greater than what I'm facing. Your capacity and capability is beyond anything I can imagine. There's nothing too hard for you. The glory of God. God, you are beautiful. I don't want to forget how beautiful you are. I don't want to fall into the trap of just using you. I want to behold you and be transformed from that place. The goodness of God. God, I I need to remember that you're good. I need to remind myself on a daily basis because of how much bad I walk through that you are good all the time. And then the grace of God. Uh, David says it so plainly. The Lord is gracious. He's full of compassion. He's slow to anger. He is great in mercy. In verse 17, he says something similar. He says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways. He is gracious in all his works. We would say about the grace of God that this speaks to his compassion and his kindness. This is why we can right now sit settled in our hearts about who God is, because he is gracious towards you and me. I love that David says specifically about God, this God of grace, that he is slow to anger and great in mercy. This is kind of, uh, th- these verses here, um, they all exist to expound on the first thought. The Lord is gracious, and in his grace, here's what that means. He's full of compassion. He's slow to anger, and he's great in mercy. The, the big idea here is that, uh, number one, uh, God doesn't treat us the way that our sins deserve. He doesn't. He hasn't. This doesn't mean that God is not just. In fact, there's a verse at the end here that's like, yo, don't get it twisted, okay? The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. Like, there is judgment and justice for sin. But right now, as we are living, as we are breathing, where you stand right now, you need to recognize that the Lord has been gracious to you. He has not treated you or I like our sins deserve. He has been patient. And the other point of this is that God isn't like us. God is not, you know, we tend to project upon God how we tend to be. I'm reactionary. I've got my capacity. I forgive this much. God is much slower to anger than you think he is. God, when, when you blow it, God doesn't go, what? oh my gosh, what did you do? He doesn't snap. He's patient. He's patient with you right now. He loves you right now. He sees what you've done. He loves you. He's slow to anger. It's more than that. He's compassionate towards you. He sees how sin is wrecking your life. But he loves you. And he feels in his heart. He goes, no, you're you're like a sheep without a shepherd. You just need to come to me. Your problem isn't just what you're doing. Your problem is that you've disconnected from me. Remember who I am and come to me. I'm gracious. I'm not here to to exact judgment on you. I'm here to love you and bring you into my warm embrace. And I want to convince you of that. And I want to make that so possible that I'm going to send my son Jesus. The scriptures say in 2 Corinthians 8 9 that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. That though he was rich, this is the gospel, yet for your sakes he became poor. This is speaking of spiritual poverty. So that you through his poverty might become rich in him. Maybe today you feel pretty spiritually poor. You feel like, man, I've just fallen short. I, I feel like I've, I've, I've caused God's well of grace to run dry over my life. And I would say to you, that's a great place to be. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that acknowledge their need for God. And here's why they can be blessed, because of who God is. He's gracious. 
And he's displayed that grace and so much so that he has become our own spiritual poverty. Jesus became sin on your and my behalf on that cross so that you and I could become rich in him. So that you and I could just be those that are objects of his grace and his love and to be found in him, not having our own righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ. Um, This is who God is. This is his nature. And we just had a moment here together to practice together remembering God. We just remembered God together. We said, Lord, you are great. Lord, you are glorious. Lord, you are so much more good than I can imagine to be. And God, thank you that you've been so gracious to me. Thank you that you've been so patient.